2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall State lawmakers have wrapped up the regular session in the Connecticut General Assembly, and they passed a new two-year, $46 billion budget, but they're not quite done. A special session is scheduled this week to allow lawmakers a vote on whether to legalize cannabis for adults. And other items could pop up, too. Today, Where We Live, we wrap up the session with Daniela Altamari, the current capital reporter, and we get analysis from columnist and former state lawmaker Kevin what bills were you watching that did or didn't make it through? We'll take your questions too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us on Zoom, again, Daniela Altamari, who covers state government and politics at The Current. Daniela, welcome back. Thank you. And Kevin Rennie is here, as I mentioned, a columnist for The Current, and he used to be a state lawmaker. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. So we've had lots of conversations about how this session was very different from others because of the pandemic. And I'll start with you, Daniela. Remind us, uh, as things started to loosen up around the state, what changed at the Capitol?
3: Well, I mean, it was uh, a very weird session, obviously. The building was closed to the public. Even now, as restrictions are lifted, there's no mask mandate at the Capitol. And yet, um, both the public and lobbyists are, are not permitted inside. So that obviously had a had a big impact on sort of the shape of the session and the way things went and spoke with many, many people who said, um, you know, from lobbyists who said they were having a very hard time reaching legislators, people weren't returning phone calls, it was very frustrating to members of the public who couldn't get access as well and also had that same difficulty. So that definitely, I think, shaped the outcome of a number of different bills.
2: Kevin, why is that problematic when we think about what happens in the final days of the legislative session to have those restrictions in place, that access still being limited?
1: Well, the the biggest problem, I think, is that uh, the legislators are denying themselves information that can be useful. Uh, In addition to that, we do have a constitutional right to petition our government, and part of that, certainly in Connecticut, the Constitution State, has included uh, access to the state capitol uh, when the when the legislature is meeting, and it really can be very helpful. You know, it's 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 not just lobbyists who go there with interests in legislation. You can you know, there can be people who have uh, who have been following a bill or may have inspired a. A bill uh, for a local legislator to uh, to propose, uh, and um, and not every group, by the way, has the lobbyists. So uh, it's it's important that uh, that they have access to the legislature in person, particularly in those frantic last few days. Um, and it's also good for the legislators.
2: Uh, Kevin mentioned those frantic last few days, Daniela, so often you see big issues uh, getting voted on in those last uh, couple of days. So talk us through what happened in in this session and how we ended up with a a special session potentially starting tomorrow.
3: Yeah, um, I I gather the Senate will be in on Tuesday and the House will be in on Wednesday. You know, one of the biggest bills left undone uh, was marijuana legalization, which did pass the Senate, but did not come up for a vote in the House. And, you know, that was certainly a priority of many members of the General Assembly who wanted to get a vote on that. And um, it did not come up for a vote before time ran out at midnight on Wednesday. And the Democrats blamed the Republicans and said, you know, or the opponents of the bill who said they would just talk it to death. Most of them are Republicans. They would just talk it to death and run out the calendar, but it does kind of, raise the question, you know, if this was such a priority piece of legislation, why not get it done earlier? Why didn't they call the vote two weeks ago? Um, why didn't they negotiate this bill back in, you know, March and and have it ready to go? So um, it does sort of raise some questions about the, the management of the legislative calendar. Um, but that was certainly a big bill that was left undone. And that's uh, part of the reason why they are coming back. This week, there's also a budget related bill that they need to vote on. Um, they did approve a state budget, but they did not approve this sort of uh, bill that sets up the mechanics for approval of the state budget. So that uh, or implementation of the state budget rather so that also was left undone. And, you know, there's always the chance that other issues could crop up. Um, so we'll see what you know what ends up coming out um, this week.
2: Kevin, you wrote about uh, that process related to that, again, recreational marijuana bill uh, and this provision that was put in, then taken out. Uh, This we had Senator Winfield on the other day uh, talking about it. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, again, this level of secrecy in the process and how that led to the failure of getting this done in the regular session.
1: Well, it. This is a major change, whatever you think of the uh, wherever you may fall on the uh, yes or no side of of uh, legalizing recreational use of marijuana. Uh, This is a major change in Connecticut policy and to release a 300 page bill, just uh, I think the Sunday before uh, the legislature was going to adjourn on Wednesday, uh, that's a risk. No, that's I mean, that's that may be that that the people uh, supporting that bill and the legislative Democratic leadership may have thought better this way than to give people too much time to examine it. But it's still a risk. And the House Republican leader, Vincent Candelora, found an unusual gift in there to someone uh, that that took them out of the lottery that we're going to see for licenses. And this is this is a very complicated process that uh, that we're about to embark on, that the Department of Consumer Protection will oversee. And um, for the public to have conf- confidence in it, it needs to be transparent and uh, and there need to be standards that are applied equally to everyone. Uh, because this can become a uh, a a real bonanza of of uh, favors being done. And um, that appeared to be a favor for someone. It took them out of the competitive process. And it then it caused all sorts of other questions about what was in the bill. And uh, if you're going to wait till the last minute, that's the risk you take on a, in a 300-page bill.
2: Danielle, I'm wondering if you can talk through uh, when this provision was in put in the, the bill, um, how the governor's office got involved. Was it surprising to you that this uh, was uncovered in the last few days of the session?
3: Um, I, I didn't report too deeply on it, my colleague Chris Keen did, but I will say that no, it's absolutely not surprising because that's what happens in those hectic final few hours. There's always all kinds of um, things in there that perhaps it done, you know, earlier and in the light of day and with people having time to really read and digest these documents would not uh, would not get in there. But, the, you know, that's the danger of this sort of frantic last minute lawmaking where these massive bills are dropped on people at the last minute things are hidden in there you know they call them rats at the capitol and um you know our our colleague john lender found uh found something else in in there you know raises for legislative employees i mean there's there's always uh things hidden in these bills that um that the legislature hopes won't uh won't be discovered um that's just kind of the nature of lawmaking up there. And it's really not uh, necessarily something that leads to to good government and public scrutiny.
2: So set us up with how the special session will run, Daniela. Uh, again, uh, cannabis will be uh, up uh, for a vote. And I'm just wondering how you uh, will see this process uh, moving through in terms of the debate that they'll hear in the in the special session.
3: Yeah, I mean, we're all assuming cannabis will be up for a vote. Um, But, you know, I've also had people say to me, there's a reason it didn't come up for a vote in the House. And there's a reason it barely passed the Senate. And maybe, you know, maybe the support isn't there. And maybe that's why it didn't come up. So who, who knows? Um, There's uh, some sort of technical issues that you know are are important I guess you know for process sake whether the cannabis bill becomes part of this big budget implementation bill or whether it's run as a standalone bill I don't know if members of the public are clearly you know all that interested or clued in uh, on those level of mechanics but it it is important because this budget bill does need to be passed so if they tie it to cannabis it could be a way of trying to you know for for the majority to try to kind of jam it in on on the other hand, it could also, you know, undermine um, this other important bill and leave them hanging. So, um, and again, you know, we don't really know. Once this Pandora's box is open, we don't know what other things could could end up coming up. I I know that um, there was a lot of unhappiness with the Democratic majorities in in both chambers for for not taking up this um, this climate bill TCI uh, as it's known. Um, And there's a lot of anger over that. And there's some discussion, maybe, you know, the governor's office indicated they'd be open to that. Maybe the legislature needs to look at that as well in special session because that was not done. And you have to sort of ask yourself, why was that not done in a a place where, you know, Democrats do hold strong majorities and uh, they, you know, profess to believe that climate change is, is human caused and we need to do something about it. So why was that not done? So that's another thing and there's probably a host of things that that I don't know about that are also under discussion.
2: You're hearing Daniela Altamara here on Where We Live as we get a recap of the regular session, a special session before the Connecticut General Assembly uh, starting up uh, tomorrow in one of the chambers. Uh, Daniela covers state government politics for the current. Kevin Rennie is also here, Hartford current columnist and former state lawmaker. Uh, before we take a call, and you can join us 888 720 9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Daniela said something that was, um, again, a point that we should uh, spend some time on the fact that we've got a Democratic governor, you've got got a Democratic majority. Uh, So often it seems that that state uh, Republicans um, are kind of shut out of the process when it comes to some of these big bills, uh, Kevin, but uh, they were able to um, definitely voice up their opposition. And we saw, again, cannabis didn't get voted on the regular session. Uh, The opposition to TCI also, um, you know, the way that this was crafted in the final days. I'm wondering if you can talk about um, the Republicans' uh, strategy here.
1: Uh, the Republicans become powerful in the last few, in the last week of the legislature, particularly the last three days of the legislative session, because uh, the clock, the clock becomes so critical. And um, with, uh, with their members, they're in the, they're in the habit of being able to talk a long time. And so they are able to use, uh that advantage uh in those critical last three days and so if the if the democratic leaders don't get what what they really want passed before the that final uh part of the session they've made themselves vulnerable you know it wouldn't matter how long the republicans would have talked on a marijuana bill that uh, that was brought up in april but uh that's that's the price that the democrats uh, i guess were willing to pay and um i guess some some unpleasantness ensued and uh they sort of tested one another and the uh, the leadership decided not to bring up the uh the marijuana bill now at that point I think Daniela raises an interesting interesting point which is the vote in the in the senate was very close at um 1917 with six democrats uh, voting against it maybe the vote in the house was was going to be was going to be close and they weren't sure of the mm-hmm. uh, of, of the number of yes votes they had and the republicans would have been aware of that and taken advantage of that as well and some of the unease as to what's what's really in this 300 page bill might have spread among uh, among wavering uh, democrats
2: you can join us if you have a question about this regular session eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. Alex is calling in from West Hartford. Alex, I know you were curious about TCI being covered in the special session. I'm wondering if we can ask you how you feel about the way lawmakers navigated this issue.
4: I feel that it was very, uh, very short-sighted of the leadership to not bring TCI nor medium and the medium and heavy duty vehicles standards bill for a vote, nor the uh, electric vehicle the direct sale of electric vehicles bill it, it, Connecticut has a huge opportunity to pioneer green technologies, but we need to put we need to put the polluters money uh, to Bear that bear that cost, we need to cap pollution on the biggest polluters and require that they pay for our special transportation projects such as uh, electric buses, uh, better walkable streets, bikeable streets, uh, EV charging stations. This is a huge missed opportunity for our state and a huge missed opportunity to fight climate change.
2: Well, Alex, thank you for your call. We're going to be talking more about the transportation and climate initiative program later this week on where we live. But Daniela, I wanted to go back to you when we talk about TCI. This was a to cap and reduce greenhouse gases from the transportation sector and then invest in, in a cleaner transportation system for Connecticut in the region. What does it mean uh, for Connecticut if they're not part of this regional project?
3: I mean it's unclear at this point but um, certainly some of the other states in this compact have already said uh, like Massachusetts that this was meant to be a regional approach and if other states such as Connecticut don't get on board it could undermine you know the whole thing for you know for other states beyond our borders I mean um, you know, uh, I spoke to a, a young climate activist with the Sunrise Movement who just really doesn't understand why, you know, when you hear these lawmakers who talk so much about how they believe in science and how they're going to be guided by, you know, by science and they believe that climate change is real and caused by humans, they can't get this fairly, you know, simple piece of legislation done. And, and by simple, I mean, it's, it's obviously very complex dealing with carbon credits and things like that. But, you know, they're looking ahead to, you know, 40 years when when we're going to be in a much more dire situation and we're going to need much more extreme measures uh, to deal with, you know, climate related issues. So in their minds, you know, it, it's quite discouraging that this generation of lawmakers who are up there at the Capitol Democrats, um, you know, Democratic majorities among them cannot get this done. And, and they're angry and they're upset. It's uh, it's really um, it's really been interesting to hear their perspectives.
2: Kevin, again, we've heard from uh, Senator Kelly and others uh, calling this a gas tax. Uh, Daniela mentioned this program is complicated. Is that part of the issue that uh, this the way that uh, the supporters talked about this? Uh, when people hear gas tax, whether or not that is true, that's what the public hears, and that led to there being uh, you know some questions about whether this could pass this session.
1: Oh, I, I do. I do think that's that's true. It did. It did. Um, it did have elements of uh, of the gas tax uh, controversies that have been almost a permanent part of Connecticut politics. And it also gave the Republicans something to latch on to, because, uh, you know, as the as the state's fiscal outlook improved, it was getting harder and harder for the Republicans to oppose uh, Oh, it's, a, uh, it's hard for them to oppose a no tax increase budget, and many of them did not. Many of them voted for it. I just if we could just for a moment, the issue of the uh, direct sale of electric uh, vehicles is in Connecticut is really a, a, a case study in um, in how the system works. Sometimes we we don't we don't allow the direct manufacturers to sell. Uh, uh, vehicles directly to uh, consumers and can, again, we haven't for well maybe a hundred years but close close to it and um, uh, Tesla wants an exemption from that uh, from that that law and it has this has been going on for years and uh, auto. It, it shows the the power of the automo- automobile dealers who are I mean ask any any legislator uh, or even local official Automob- automobile dealers are very active in their communities, and um, they participate in a lot of uh, events and with a lot of groups, and they're generous donors. And I think that this, this legislation may be one of the few that they ever asked for anything from a, leg- a local legislator. And that, uh, I think that the proponents of uh, exempting Tesla from our automobile franchise law, uh discovered that again this year they've seen it before they thought they were really close this year but they just didn't have the votes
2: Uh, one last word going back to the tci bill uh anthony tweeting us the tci bill has been drafted since early in the session but senator looney has been blocking debate and a vote he goes on, this isn't a new proposal. The Transportation and Climate Initiative multi-state process started way back in 2010. So we'll see if it pops up uh, this uh, special session starting in another day or two. My guest, Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist and former state lawmaker, also with us, Daniela Altamari, who covers state government and politics at the Hartford Current. We'll be back after a short break. You can join us, too, 888 That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
4: Support for
1: this podcast comes from Hartford Health Care.
4: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Health Care.
2: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalba Thanchel. We wanted to spend some time recapping the legislative session that just wrapped up last week, but they'll be back starting tomorrow for a special session on Zoom with us. Daniela Altamari, who covers state government and politics at the Hartford Current and Kevin Rennie, a former state lawmaker and now Hartford Current columnist. Uh, we were talking about what didn't pass this legislative session, but I wanted both of you to talk a little bit about some of the, the bills that made it through, uh, that you thought were really impactful. Danielle, I'll start with you.
3: Um, Well, there was a, uh, there were a lot of bills that uh, had been kicking around um, in years past, like um, this uh, proposal to end the religious exemption for uh, childhood vaccinations, not COVID, but other childhood vaccinations, such as mumps and measles and things like that, Um, that passed this year. And actually that passed fairly early in the legislative session. So I think that was a big win for people who wanted to see that. Um, That's one that had been kicking around for a while. Um, They also passed this deceptive advertising for pregnancy centers, which was another issue that uh, had um, support in the Capitol in years past. Um, They passed a bill, I think this was was really interesting, uh, to address the rising number of pedestrian and bike fatalities. And that's something that I think at least for the past couple of years had been had been put forth and um, finally, you know, got over the finish line. So those are those are three things that, that you know certainly had a lot of advocates. Of course, the vaccine bill also has a lot of critics, and they were very vocal and spent uh, many hours at the Capitol rallying and protesting, including on the final day. So it'll be interesting to see where that one winds up. Probably in the courts at some point, but um, or it already is in the courts actually. Um, so those, those are things that, you know, had had been sort of mulled for a while and, and finally got through. There was a zoning bill that was, um, you know, to address uh, racial isolation uh, through zoning. Uh, that was, um, you know, greatly sort of uh, um, reduced, uh, but that did pass, but it wasn't what uh, the proponents had, um, had sought. So those were a few of the ones I'm thinking of right off the top of my head.
2: You mentioned the zoning. It was significantly watered down. So what will it do, Daniela?
3: Um, Well, I mean, as I remember it, a lot of what it will do is, you know, uh, direct people to study the issue. It did uh, put some measures in place to allow, you know, people to have uh, so-called, you know, in-law apartments uh, in some in some cases, but the real sort of uh, strong elements of it, like um, requ- you know, allowing um, multifamily zoning in uh, transit-oriented areas, you know, downtowns and things like that. that is a lot of that was was taken out of the bill.
2: And Kevin, how about you? What were some of the bills that, that stuck out to you that actually are making it to the governor's desk?
1: Well, I. Th- I- I think that the the um, the remnants of of the original zoning proposal, uh, it it was it was what was left what was taken out much more interesting, or I guess than what was kept in but a reminder, it was a reminder that local zoning in Connecticut um, uh, is uh, is an area that legislators uh, of of both parties are very reluctant to uh, uh, to trespass on they um uh they're they're really in touch with the people in their communities and uh, you know i just i think that um uh democrats and republicans are leery of making um making big changes in in what uh in what zoning uh, in lo- what local zoning authorities can do and um so this is a this is this is an overwhelmingly democratic uh, controlled legislature and, uh, and the governor is a democrat and you think if if uh if there was going to be a time to make these changes that this would be it and uh, and they just fell far short of that uh, there um, are some and in 169 towns in connecticut still no matter no matter what the other changes mm-hmm. there may be and there are some uh, immutables in that
2: do so you anticipate this issue will come back uh, the next session, Kevin?
1: Yes. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, it may come back from the advocates, but I think that um, uh, legislators would be even even less likely to address it in an election year. I mean, this is this session is as far as they get from from the next election, and um, uh, they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it this year, so they're unlikely to want to do it next year six months or so before before they face the voters Mm.
2: there were a lot of criminal justice bills uh, before the legislature also looking at you know how incarcerated people are treated within our prison system we look at uh, limiting solitary confinement but there was also a a bill I think that made it through Kevin that that you think uh, needs to be highlighted and that's uh, you know the free phone calls for people that are
1: incarcerated I do I, we should have done this a long time ago because it's it is a penalty uh, to to uh, charge uh, uh, the incarcerated and their families essentially uh, uh, a lot of money for phone calls and really part of of uh, helping people uh, re-enter the um, re-enter re-enter uh, society after they serve their term is is uh, connection with their family that, that's that's one of that's one of the most important factors in successfully uh leaving uh, a prison and not returning to it and that phone call is a lifeline it really is an Im- important aspect of of um of families staying in touch and um uh, that they they've been denied that uh, access for for too long and gary winfield Deserves a lot of credit for uh, for getting that passed. It's also a big business, so he went up against some other interests, and he prevailed. And uh, good for him.
2: Chris is calling in from Wethersfield. Chris, go ahead with your question. Uh, yes, I
5: keep hearing a lot of um, explanations of our state's problems that have to deal with process, and in the in business. Uh, that changes so much, there's a, usually a group uh, that does, you know, process engineering, reengineering, you know, systems do have to change with the times, processes have to change. I'd like to know who or where in the state is in charge of doing that so that we don't keep hearing the same Problems year after year after year, governor after
2: governor. Good question, Chris. I'll start with you, Danielle. I know some people have talked about the importance of a full-time legislature.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just the nature of government. Government moves slowly and, and cumbersomely in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, having a full-time legislature um, maybe would address some issues, but it might also raise other issues. So. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you can say, well, we have a full-time Congress and what are, well, allegedly full-time Congress, what do they do? Um, so maybe that's not the answer, but maybe it is, I don't know, maybe it's time to try it.
2: We've been spending a lot of time talking about the legislature, but I didn't want to uh, uh, have this segment end without talking about the governor, the governor's role in all of this, including uh, transparency, which is a big issue, especially when the press uh, tries to cover this administration. Uh, Kevin, you've been dealing with uh, the transparency question with the Lamont administration. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, it's hard to believe that uh, Governor Lamont in his youth was a newspaper editor because uh they uh his office is uh is and and i think it reflects him his attitude as governor uh they they are just very resistant to transparency and um and to releasing documents under their freedom of information act and dragging their feet the current has had a has had a request uh, pending uh for uh, uh documents relating to the reopening commission from last spring it's been pending for a year and still they've received not a single document from the governor's office, which on that issue in particular, specifically pledged transparency because the governor had handed over the job of advising him to a, an entity that was not subject to the Freedom of Information Act or to the protections of our state ethics code. And, uh, and yet they've, they've failed. And there's just a general resistance in the, in his administration particularly in his office, to uh, to the Freedom of Information Act, which is one of Connecticut's glories.
2: So you were talking about that issue with the current. I know the day uh, has been upset with uh, the governor uh, for not uh, the office, not uh, passing along uh, the of information related to the state peer. Uh, Danielle, I wanted to get your take on, on what you're noticing. I mean, obviously, the governor and his team had uh, often daily briefings, at least to the start in the middle of the pandemic, uh, frequent briefings with the press and others. But if you're not uh, you know, handing over documents that also um, put the light on the process, that can be problematic.
3: sure and i think uh kevin raises a good point about sort of the way that this has been managed and who's doing you know who is actually uh doing the work and whether it is uh entities that are subject to freedom of information. You know, on the other hand, you can look at the, from the governor's point of view, you know, do do people really care? Obviously we in the news business feel they should care. This is a democracy. Um, But uh, the governor's ratings have never been higher. He's very popular. People think he did a good job running, you know, handling the pandemic. Even some Republicans think he did a good job handling the pandemic. So perhaps, you know, his, perspective is really, you know, the press can be mad and we, we don't need to be as open as, as we should be, uh, as we're required to be under the law, because the public really doesn't care. They're giving me good grades for the way I'm running the state.
2: It's mm, an interesting point, but we know the pandemic, uh, the new normal, as we're all calling it, uh, things are starting to get back to normal. And we remember what the administration uh, was like, uh, Kevin, before the pandemic and how they handled issues like tolls. And, you know, we know this pandemic yes. luckily will be ending soon. But the question of how this administration continues to run state government beyond a public health crisis.
1: Oh, I, I think that's true I think I, I would I would uh, add to what Daniela said that I think a lot of Republicans were appreci- appreciated uh, the governor's steady steady hand um, but um, but that that's not necessarily uh, a license uh, that's going to uh, that's going to be valid for the rest of his term and uh, w- what I think that elected officials sometimes forget in the moment is that the Freedom of Information Act is for their benefit too. It is a reminder, an important reminder, that you know, someone's going to see what you did. And, um, uh, and so they, you, you wanna think about that before you exercise uh, your authority in the people's business. And it, it really can be an important part of a governing philosophy if you don't decide that you're going to ignore it for as long as you possibly can.
2: And lastly, uh, you've been uh, dealing with a protracted fight with the administration over your FOIA request related to the governor's wife, Annie Lamont, and her role in the administration. Can you briefly tell us where this stands?
1: Well, it's that my request was uh, was for uh, di- uh, emails and text messages between the uh, two of the governor's top aides and Mrs. Lamont. Um, and, uh, it has, uh, that was in August of 2019 documents were withheld and others were redacted. Uh, we had a hearings with it for a hearing officer, uh, in December and February, February of this year. And then we had a, uh, a, a, there was a freedom of information commission meeting, on last week to, uh, consider adopting the hearing officers, um, recommendation, which I, I had hoped they would, and uh, uh, there seemed to be uh, some objection to that at the last minute. And so uh, it was posted, a final decision was postponed for two weeks in order to give members of the commission who want, who would like to, a chance to look at those, uh, those documents. And of course, you know, the, the odd thing about all this is that you know, I, I make the case, but I'm the only one who hasn't seen what's behind the redactions and what, and what documents have been, um, uh, have been withheld. So uh, the hearing officer sees that. And really, you just you have to rely on the hearing officer's judgment when you can't see the documents.
2: Well, we can't wait to hear how this ends up for you, Kevin Rennie. We appreciate your time here on Where We Live, uh, talking about this very important issue, as well as recapping the legislative session. Thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. And Daniela Altamare was here who covers state government and politics at the Hartford Current. You'll be back at it tomorrow, Daniela, with the start of the special session. Good luck to you.
3: Thank you so much. Take care.
2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, And our listeners know uh, the governor's office, we've had the governor on pretty regularly throughout the pandemic. His last time on our show was March 24th. We've been trying to get him back on to answer your questions. We know you have a lot of them, and we're still waiting to hear back. After the break, we'll talk about another bill that made it through the end of this session. This will be to expand Husky uh, health care coverage for some children. We'll find out more. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Now, one of the bills that made it through near the end of the session expands the state's Medicaid program, or Husky, and helps the undocumented population in our state. Uh, Joining us now to talk about uh, this legislation on Zoom, Francis Padilla, President of the Universal Healthcare Foundation of Connecticut. Francis, welcome to the show. Good morning,
0: Lucy. Thanks for inviting
2: me. So briefly remind us about the Husky program currently and how this will be expanded to help some in the undocumented population.
0: Yes, sure. The Husky program in Connecticut is our Medicaid program and it is actually made up of four different uh, programs that cover children, that cover uh, single adults, that cover um, uh, uh families as well and uh, what it has not done ever is actually uh, included uh, coverage for people who are not legally present in Connecticut so people who are immigrants without documentation have not been able to um, qualify even on their the basis of income for uh, husky coverage in Connecticut up until now
2: So when we talk about this bill that made it through, I know it's limited, I believe, to uh, pregnant mothers and then children up to the age of eight. Why did it become so limited? I know this is not what the advocates originally asked for.
0: Yes, well, um, the original um, uh, bill really was looking for all uh, undocumented immigrants to be eligible for Husky and that would include all children up to the age of 18 and all adults, Um, again, people who are income eligible. Uh, um, This effort was really part of a broader uh, set of healthcare coverage initiatives designed to close uh, coverage gaps and affordability gaps in Connecticut that have been longstanding uh, because they have existed even before the COVID pandemic, but the pandemic actually accentuated the need for uh, this kind of of coverage. And so, um, when in the negotiations, essentially, there just wasn't sufficient political will to cover everyone in in the uh, undocumented community uh, un, under the Husky program, and there was then a um, uh, decision. So there was a bill um, that was originally bill, uh, Senate Bill 956, which would have covered everybody. And uh, after much back and forth, um, it became clear that that would not happen. And the legislative leadership then um, introduced House Bill 6687, which was considerably more uh, limited to children under the age of nine and to pregnant women for prenatal care and then for a year up to a year of post um, birth uh, care I but you to get know some. this is really the beginning uh, it, in mm. several states a half dozen other states have expanded their medicaid coverage to the undocumented some have started with children up to age 18. And so this is only the beginning, and uh, it's, a good, it's a good outcome in the sense of it's better than nothing, but it really is the only the beginning and there needs to be much more work done.
2: I wanted to get some uh, personal perspective on this issue. Uh, joining us now on the phone is Katia Daly, who's a campaign organizer, healthcare campaign organizer with CT Students for a Dream. Katia, welcome to our show.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: I understand you provided testimony to the General Assembly about why this expansion uh, of Husky uh, for those who are undocumented is needed. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story?
5: Yeah. So I am formally undocumented, um, and this is very important to me. Um, when I was still uh, undocumented, while I was still in high school, I played different sports. Uh, one of them, which was volleyball, and um, um, there was an incident, an accident, actually in the, in the court, where I had sprained my ankle, um, and I hid this uh, from my coach, my my peers, um, because of the reason that my parents couldn't afford the um, healthcare that I might need um, and the support that I might need for um, the sprained ankle. So I kind of deal with the pain until I started limping. Um, so when that happened, my coach kind of took me out and I started like crying and having a very um, anxiety attack basically. Um, and a lot of my my peers were saying like, it's, it's okay, the pain will go away. But one of the reasons why I was crying wasn't because of so much of the pain. It was more about how was I going to let my parents know that um, I will become a financial burden to them through this process. Um, we wouldn't be able to go. We I didn't want to go to the emergency room. They wanted to take me there. I was like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do that. We can't afford that. Um, and there, a lot of the, the things that came to my mind was that I needed to make sure that I was able to heal at home um, and for this, it might have been a bit of a, um, a situation where I couldn't have been able to play volleyball again because of how my ankle would have healed. Um, thankfully, my school was able to provide me with some uh, financial aid for the uh, therapy, uh, the physical therapy, and some other um, uh, care. That uh, my, uh, has helped me to, to deal with that. But, you know, that that was a very traumatic experience for me as I was like 15 years old trying to figure out how my parents could afford this.
2: Yeah, we know how uh, healthcare costs can really spiral out of control, especially when you don't have insurance. So, Katia, I'm glad that uh, you're able to get help with your injury. But Katia's story, Francis, you know, speaks to this bigger issue in the sense that you know, people that are uninsured, uh, the the um, choices they have to make, whether they go and get care and, and how they're going to pay for it. Uh, you Earlier you said that there wasn't political will uh, to help um, this expansion to cover more than just children up to age eight and pregnant mothers, you know, regardless of their immigration status. I'm wondering if you can talk about you know, why that is. Is it because of the misconceptions that uh, people who are undocumented are are taking advantage of the system?
0: Yes, there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of fear that um, that having uh, access to these uh, kinds of resources will um, inundate the system and that we uh, can't possibly afford it. And uh, the reality is that as with people who are um, citizens or otherwise legally present in, in Connecticut and in the United States, Care for gone is care that ends up being more expensive, and we've said this at Universal Healthcare Foundation, uh, our entire uh, existence that it really is um, makes no sense to not have everyone covered so that you can get the preventive care, uh, which is much less expensive than more um, specialized and uh, acute care needed later when uh, people you know don't go for. Their um, their physicals or don't take care of situations like Katya's accident. Um, at the public hearing in March uh, for this bill, uh, there were over 250 people who submitted testimony, including you know healthcare providers. Some. Uh, a a doctor's organization called Doctors for America, which we have a Connecticut chapter of, submitted uh, testimony from some 300 physicians. And of course, there were also some... Immigrants who themselves uh, told their stories. A, a woman who went into the emergency room, um, uh, pregnant 24 weeks, had was not feeling well. Was really badly treated and was turned away. Was sent home. And when she returned because she didn't feel well, she then had a stillbirth. And these are these are you know traumatic experiences that none of us who um, have uh, insurance who take it for granted would uh, accept uh, in, under any circumstances. And so the, uh, the need for uh, having everyone covered is really a public health measure. It really is important for all of us to be able to be covered uh, through whatever means, um, make the most sense, right? And to be able to get the care that is needed. It, is, it makes um, uh, human sense, right? health sense and it makes financial sense as well.
2: We just have a couple of minutes left, Francis. Again, uh, this is just the first step. Uh, Do you anticipate that uh, this could be brought up again and you could see a Husky expansion uh, that would cover more people?
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, um, uh, the governor has to sign this bill and so the advocacy for his signature continues as I speak. Um, And then uh, the uh, intention is to return and to continue to pursue uh, coverage of uh, all undocumented immigrants, providing access to um, some, you know, it's between 65 and 70,000 people. It's not even that many individuals. It's about half the people who are um, in our state who are known to be undocumented who who need um, coverage. And so making affordable uh, access to quality care available to them is something that uh, w- the coalition of organizations of which we at Universal are part will definitely return and and keep fighting for. Mm.
2: Katya, we heard from you earlier. I'm wondering uh, just your, if you could just tell us you know, how you feel about this particular bill getting passed and the work that still needs to be done.
5: Yeah, so um, I'm very happy that this bill was able to pass, although it has a lot of shortcomings. We have talked about the what will be the uh the expansion for immigrant children and the pre- and pregnant women uh, we understand that there has been a lot of um a a lot of advocacy that our community has done and will continue to do It is very important to, that we continue to advocate for our lives this is the life of the situation for most, some of us and uh, it's important to understand that um our of where lives are uh, dependent on this bill Um, so we will continue to fight our coalition um, of community members organizations and health care advocates will continue to fight for the health care expansion of uh, all our uh, community members Um, so yeah
2: well, thank you, Katia Daly, for coming on the show, a healthcare campaign organizer with Connecticut Students for a Dream. We appreciate your time. And Francis Padilla, president of the Universal Healthcare Foundation of Connecticut. We'd love to have you back. There's a lot of issues to talk about related to healthcare. Thank you, Francis.
0: Thank you for inviting me. We'd love to come back.
2: I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. You can listen to Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Back tomorrow.